Hi, and welcome to the August edition of the EVJ podcast. I am your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today, Dr. Dee Pollard is joining us to discuss horse owners' recognition of laminitis. And Dr. James Carmalt will be describing associations found between TMJ and dental pathology. Dr. Dee Pollard is a PhD student based jointly within the Epidemiology Department of the Animal Health Trust and at the RVC. Her PhD thesis is titled Cohort Study to Further Elucidate Modifiable Risk Factors for Laminitis in Great Britain. And she joins us today to discuss her paper titled Assessment of Horse Owners' Ability to Recognise Equine Laminitis, a cross-sectional study of 93 veterinary diagnosed cases in Great Britain. Dee, thank you for joining us this morning. Um, You and your colleagues have recently carried out a study assessing the horse owner's ability to recognise equine laminitis. So what prompted your decision to start assessing owner's recognition of this disease? Um, So I think it's quite a well-recognised fact that not all episodes of laminitis will receive veterinary attention. Um, And so a lot of the epidemiological studies that use only veterinary diagnosed cases will be identifying only a proportion of the true cases. Um, And owner recognition of laminitis is something that has not previously been assessed. So we wanted to see if ultimately for future studies, um, owner-recognized episodes could potentially be used in combination with veterinary diagnosed ones to give us a better idea of the actual burden laminitis presents to the horse-owning population. So what were your specific aims and hypotheses? So our main aim was to find out um, that if an owner suspected their horse had laminitis, and this was their reason for requesting an appointment with their vet, would their vet also diagnose laminitis after examining the horse? And we hypothesized that these owner-recognized episodes would be more common in owners that had previous direct experience with the disease, um, and therefore a large proportion of owners that suspected laminitis we thought would uh, suspected correctly. Um, And as secondary aims, we also anticipated that there would be a proportion of owners who would not recognize laminitis at all in their horses, but would call their vet because they knew something was wrong with the horse. Um, And gathering this information then also helped us to compare information between episodes where owners recognized laminitis correctly or where they didn't recognize it at all and any possible reasons behind this non-recognition. And finally, uh, we also wanted to compare information received from both vets and owners in owner-recognized episodes only. So this enabled us to explore any differences in reporting between pairs of vets and owners when looking at the same horse, um, and to give us insight into clinical signs and risk factors that owners were using when deciding that their horse had laminitis. Okay, so after recruiting a selection of practices, you used two different laminitis reporting forms, and these were specially designed for either the referring veterinary surgeon or for the owner. So what specific points were you assessing and what kind of information were you gathering? So we tried to keep it as quick and easy as possible for our volunteering vets and owners to fill out the forms while still getting all the relevant information. And all the forms were pre-coded with the practice IDs. And we first asked just some identifying information like the horse and owner's names, uh, the date of the consultation and the attending vet's initials. 
Um, then on the vet forms, we asked vets to provide provide some brief information about the horse's signalment, so the age and breed, and the vet's opinion as to whether the horse was underweight, of an adequate weight or overweight, um, whether the owner suspected the horse had laminitis, and in this case, what the vet's final diagnosis was, even if it wasn't laminitis. Um, and if owners did not suspect laminitis, we asked vets to tell us what the owner thought was wrong with the horse. Um, then for both the vet and owner forms, we had tick boxes, which assessed the presence or absence of 27 uh, clinical signs commonly associated with active episodes of laminitis. And we also collected information about um, in underlying factors associated with laminitis that could help us differentiate between uh, laminitis of endochronopathic or inflammatory or supporting limb origins. And we also asked um, both vets and owners to state if um, any horse and management level risk factors associated with laminitis that helped them to make their either final diagnosis or help them to recognize laminitis if they were owners. Um, and finally, um, only on the owner forms, we uh, asked owners to indicate if they had any uh, previous direct experience lamina with laminitis. Um, and of course, at the end, we allowed um, any um, additional information with free text space. So once the information was gathered um, from the forms, what kind of things did you compare between veterinary and owner reported data? So because we had veterinary forms for all the episodes, we could differentiate between those episodes where owners correctly suspected laminitis, so the owner-recognized cases, and also those episodes where owners either didn't know what was wrong with the horse or suspected another condition while the vet actually ultimately diagnosed laminitis. So these were our owner-unrecognized cases. So using the vet forms, we wanted to see if there were any differences in the prevalence of vet-reported clinical signs or underlying condition or risk factors between owner-recognized and unrecognized cases, which would then give us some insight into factors that made cases more or less likely to be recognized by owners. And then for episodes where owners were able to correctly recognize laminitis, we had the paired data from uh, vets and owners for each episode. So here we really wanted to explore how owner assessment of clinical signs compared to veterinary assessment and which factors were perceived to be important in assisting vets to diagnose active laminitis or owners to recognize it. Okay, so what did you find the general signalment of the horses included in the study was? So we had a range of breeds, although Welsh breeds and their crosses, um, followed by cobs and their crosses, were most frequently represented. Uh, the median age of the horses was 15 years, but it ranged from 3 years to 26 years. Um, and the majority, so 62%, were considered to be overweight by the vets, with only 36% which were considered to be of an adequate weight. So how did the owners fare and their recognition of laminitis? So out of the 93 veterinary diagnosed episodes, uh, 51 were suspected to be laminitis by their owners and, these, and all of these were then confirmed by veterinary diagnosis. So in that respect, as we hypothesized, when owners thought it was laminitis, this was the same conclusion that vet reached in all these cases. However, 
we did have a proportion of episodes where owners didn't recognize laminitis at all, and that was 45% out of the 93 episodes. Um, and in these cases, owners either didn't know what the problem was, so they thought it was just some kind of undefined lameness, or they actually suspected a number of other conditions. And the conditions they most frequently suspected were either foot abscesses, colic, or musculoskeletal stiffness. And what did you find were the main similarities and differences between the veterinary and the owner-recognized and unrecognized cases? So the only significant difference um, in clinical signs that vets reported between cases where owners recognized and didn't recognize laminitis was the presence of divergent growth rings. So divergent growth rings were more common in cases of owner-recognized laminitis. And the only other significant difference uh, we found was in breed type. So the animal's breed type was more commonly, commonly reported as a risk factor that assisted with the vet's final laminitis diagnosis in owner-recognized cases. And when we kind of looked further into the breed distribution between owner-recognized and unrecognized cases, then we saw that pony breeds were more prevalent than horse breeds in cases where owners recognized laminitis. And how do you think this data will affect future epidemiological studies on laminitis? So by answering the main aim of the study, this allowed us to determine that by using a combination of both veterinary diagnosed and owner-recognized laminitis episodes, in future studies could provide more robust disease frequency estimates. So we would kind of be picking up more of the cases that were happening out in the field. And we did have quite limited sample size um, to achieve our secondary aims, just due to the fact that some clinical signs occur much more frequently than others. So we couldn't assess formal agreement between vets and owners. Um, but further research that expands on these preliminary findings in our study, um, which would help owners recognize laminitis for what it is and at the earliest possible moment is needed. And I think additionally, a research which provides evidence on the progression of clinical signs would help with earlier identification of disease episodes. So how do you think this data would change the way you try to educate owners in the recognition of laminitis in the future? So in our study, uh, we noted that owners recognized laminitis much more commonly in pony breeds compared to horse breeds, and the majority of the owners had previous direct experience of the disease. Um, well, we considered laminitis as a threat to all horses and ponies, and while some may be at a higher risk than others, we think it's important that laminitis is not excluded as a cause of lameness just based on breed type, and particularly when a horse's previous his, uh, clinical history is unknown. So I think targeted owner education about laminitis would help educate owners that have no prior experience with the disease or those that own horses or horse breed types that they might perceive not to be at risk. So I think also particularly education focusing on the more subtle but commonly reported clinical signs associated with laminitis, so such as increased intensity in digital pulses, difficulty making a tight turn, short stilted gait, and reluctance to move forward, um, especially over hard or uneven surfaces. So while a horse standing, you know, in the typical laminitic stance 
um, is considered to really signify the disease, it's actually found in considerably less episodes compared to some of the more subtle clinical signs. Okay, so that would be your, your take-home message for us. Yes. Okay, well, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for your time. No, thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Dr. James Carmelt is Professor of Equine Surgery at the University of Saskatchewan in Canada. He'll be discussing his paper titled The Association Between Oral Examination Findings and Computed Tomographic Appearance of the Equine Temporomandibular Joint. James, thanks for joining us to um, discuss your most recent research looking at oral examination findings and computed tomographic appearance of the equine TMJ. How have um, dental abnormalities and TMJ disease previously been linked in the literature? It's an interesting question. Um, I'm just going to take you back a little bit, I think, to TMJ disease in the horse because really when we look at TMJ disease, we're always comparing it to different species. Um, and the thing that is quite fascinating for me is the fact that a very significant percentage of human patients, humans, will actually experience signs of TMJ disease during their lifetime, up to 60% in fact. Um, and yet when you look across the equine population, we're really not appreciating this um, to any significant amount. The other thing that's interesting is that when you look again at the humans, um, it's actually classified in the myofascial pain group. It's one of seven classifications, and that includes intraarticular as well as extraarticular diseases. So when we look at equine TMJ disease, we really are only focused on the true intraarticular disease. Now, if you take the true intraarticular disease in the human side, there is no good evidence that any um, problems within the mouth are linked to TMJ disease. And I think in the paper we talked about um, the fact that dental restorations may or may not have an effect. Um, and that in fact, if you lose teeth, there is a correlation between TMJ disease and lost teeth, but that's never really been linked um, in the horse. There is in fact only one paper, a paper by Kevin May in Federheiklung, uh, or the German journal, that suggested that horses with incisor abnormalities had aversion behavior to TMJ palpation. And when he corrected the incisor abnormalities, that aversion behavior disappeared. Um, it's, it's a low number of horses, it's extremely subjective, but that is, in fact is, is the only paper that I can come across that, uh, that link the two issues. So what were the objectives and hypotheses of, of this study? The objectives were um, to determine the association between specific oral and dental pathologies and anatomical variations of the TMJ uh, when it was imaged using computer tomography. Um, and we picked horses that the study participants did not think had TMJ problems. We wanted asymptomatic horses. Um, and the hypothesis, of course, uh, which was the statistical null hypothesis, was that there was no association between specific oral or dental pathologies 
and CT anatomical variations within the equine temporomandibular joint. And what study design did you use? It was a retrospective study. That was a cross-sectional study, so retrospective cross-sectional study in total, um, using a large number of horses. Okay, how, how many horses and what was their average signalment? Um, we looked at over 1,300 CTs, uh, which we published in a previous study, um, and then took a subset of those 1,300. So we had a total of 201 um, with complete oral examinations that have been performed using a full mouth speculum, sedation, and uh, oral endoscopy. Um, the majority were males. I think we had 107 males with 90 females. Uh, we had four in which the sex wasn't recorded. And the mean age was 10 and a half years. Okay, and how did you look at the CT findings and the oral examination findings and what specific factors did you compare and contrast? Okay, so when we look at, let me take you back. When we looked at the CT findings, we were looking at variations of normal. And the reason we looked at variations of normal is that there is no evidence in the literature, nor, neither within the human or equine literature, that would suggest one particular abnormality, let's say, for example, mineralization of the intraarticular disc, is any more significant from a clinical perspective than a, a subchondral bone cyst, for example. And so we were very, very careful to use the word variation as opposed to pathology, because we have no good understanding of what a pathology actually is. Um, so for the CT abnormalities, we were looking at mineralization of the intraarticular disc, um, clefts or cysts within the condyle of the mandible or within the temporal condyle, um, osteophytosis on the medial lateral aspects of the, uh, of the joint itself, um, and that was about it from the CT findings. Uh, from the intraoral findings, we had a raft of abnormalities, and I think that's in the uh, publication with the supplementary data. We looked at evidence or, or um, absence of EOTRH, that's that relatively new incisor condition, equine odontoclastic tooth resorption, hyperplasia. We wanted to report whether there are any incisor malocclusions incisor loss, and if so, which tooth number was involved, irregularities of the bar of the mouth, malocclusions of the cheek teeth, and that included hooks, ramps, excess transverse ridges, stepped teeth, wave, wave mouth, which was subsequently graded if it was present, the presence of diastomata and periodontal disease, um, and if so, the position within the mouth, because, of course, the further back you go in the mouth, the greater the masticatory forces are on the cheek tooth battery. And that's some work that was done by Carsten Stasek's group out of uh, Gießen in Germany. Uh, supernumerary teeth, whether or not there were cheek tooth um, or cheek teeth missing. And if so, where in the mouth that missing tooth occurred. Cheek tooth fractures, infundibular abnormalities, uh, obviously of the maxillary teeth. Um, apical pathology. Um, which, of course, we could see on um, if the tooth was removed. Uh, suspected open pulps, uh, which are quite difficult to appreciate without the use of oral endoscopy. 
and whether or not there was sinus involvement present clinically. And we tried to sort of match the CT findings with the oral examination findings. So did you find any associations between the list of dental pathology and the TMJ variations seen on CT? Yes, we did. Um, interestingly, we, we did a, some univariant analysis to begin with. So that's where you take the abnormality in question, let's call it you know, the CT abnormality, and you put each one of those factors that I've just listed in against the abnormality. And if you have a p-value that's less than 0.2, you keep that off in a pile. And then at the end of the day, you put all of the those variables that you've stored into the model and start pulling out the least significant ones. So at the end, we were left with age as a factor, periodontal disease, and infundibular disease. Um, and we had to actually control for the university, of course, because different people may, in fact, look at the teeth in a, in a slightly different way. Uh, but once you control for that, age, periodontal disease, and infundibular disease come out as statistically significant. Okay, and I think you found that there were reduced odds of TMJ pathology or variation in association with periodontal disease. So why do you think this could occur? Again, that's an interesting question. You're absolutely right. We, we did find reduced odds, uh, 0.34 in fact, which is you know, less than a third actually. Um, the hypothesis that we put forward was that periodontal disease is extremely painful, um, and Paddy Dixon has previously reported on that, and something that was known in the veterinary literature in the 18th century. Um, and as such, we believe that they chew with less force, and therefore less force is transmitted to the temporomandibular joints, resulting in a protective effect. Um, that said, of course, it's a theory. We have no evidence to support that. Did you see any effect of which side of the mouth this was occurring on? No, we didn't. Um, and it's something with, with the numbers of horses that we had, we could not split it then down into left side of pathology with left side of um, pain, as far as I remember. Any okay. And again, I think you found increased odds um, for TMJ pathology or variation when infundibular disease was present. So what were your hypothesized reasons for this? That is a very difficult question. And the reason for that is that at this stage, we can't identify a biological reason for it. It's certainly not age, um, because when you actually force an interaction term statistically between age and the infundibular disease, it's not a function of age. Um, and even when I presented this data just recently to an international group of our peers, um, nobody could come up with a reason. What we think currently is that it could be the result of an, uh, an unidentified factor, which, while it may be linked, has absolutely nothing to do with infundibular disease at all. The other theory, possibly, is that maybe horses with infundibular disease have an underlying abnormality in, I don't know, let's say cemental development, um, which actually has a co-joined abnormality and underlying anatomy. Um, but it, that is a complete stab in the dark, truthfully. Um, I think this is one of those um, 
one of these findings that while it may be mathematically significant, is questionable from a biological significance standpoint. You talked earlier about TMJ intraarticular disc degeneration. Did you find any um, dental abnormalities which were associated with this disease process? No, interestingly. Um, again, we, we controlled for the university veterinary practice, which we had to anyway, and age was about the only significant risk factor. And that is the same uh, finding as we had previously published with the very larger data set that uh, age is, is the only factor. And I think that's a function of a crude repetitive injury or um, stress over time. Interestingly, we found quite a significant number of, of horses had disc mineralization as they age, which is very different from the humans. Human intraarticular disc mineralization is rare, or at least rarely published. And in fact, I could only find one case report from Japan um, in which that occurred. And in fact, in those cases, the position of disc mineralization being caudal and ventral is completely opposite to that of the horse, which is usually rostral and dorsal. And I think that difference is reflective of the different ways in which humans and horses chew. Were there any limiting factors within this study? There are always limiting factors in any study, and, and quite often if you go back, you would like to start over and do it again. In this case, because of the cross-sectional nature uh, of the study, it was difficult to establish whether oral pathology preceded TMJ abnormalities. And that's the age-old question. Do changes within the mouth lead to difference in the balance of forces presented to the TMJs and therefore they develop disease or changes? Or do you have changes in the temporomandibular joint, which are painful, and therefore the horse changes the way they chew to protect that? And that, because of the hypsodont nature of the equine dentition, changes what you find in the mouth. Well, we really we don't know that. The other, sorry, the other additional um, thing that that we wanted to point out was that we only used two hundred horses, and so to extrapolate that to the equine population at large is fraught with danger. And you really don't want to take what we found and spread it out and say, well, there is no correlation because that's that's just that could be completely inappropriate. Okay, so do you um, intend on pursuing this research further? Yes, I think we have a we have a few irons in the fire, so to speak. I mean, it, at this stage, it's simply a case of numbers. What we really want to do um, in all facets of dentistry, but also equine veterinary um, education at large, is to set up some type of study which involves the practitioners as well as academics because practitioners have the caseload and the numbers that are buried in their data systems and the academics have the time to write the papers and I think there will be a fantastic marry up between those two groups of people so we can get big numbers. With big numbers you can do some pretty high power statistics to try and correlate these abnormalities. So what would your um, ultimate take-home message be for this paper? Ultimately, despite examining over 
200 horses with different ages, the biological significance of our changes um, or the correlations between oral dental disease and anatomically appreciable TMJ disorders is uncertain. Um, and it's important to state that just because we found a significance mathematically does not necessarily mean biological significance. The other thing is we can only report on and theorize on factors that we identified. It's possible that there are other important oral abnormalities that we didn't identify because we don't actually even know that they are there that have a significant effect on TMJ abnormalities. So at the moment, we're just scratching the surface, so to speak. Okay, so lots to come. Thanks very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. If anyone has a potential case of TMJ disease, James would be very interested in discussing the case. If so, please get in touch. Thanks for listening and join us again for October's edition.